want to have all of you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1, and while you're uh, finding that, very familiar passage, I just read it, only this time I'm going to have you repeat after me, love is patient and kind, love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast, love does not envy or boast, remember you're on TV right now, it is not arrogant or rude, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. But rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love bears all things. Believes all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Endures all things, and we can say this all together, love never ends. Love never ends. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Once in a while, I get asked about seminary. Sometimes from a young man or from some of you and just asking what was it like? What, what do you have to go through? It's actually kind of a difficult question to answer. It's probably on the level of a United States Marine trying to describe boot camp to somebody who's never been. But let me try to share my experience with you just a little bit for the sake of some of you who have asked because it relates to our topic this morning. A traditional seminary experience I went through at the Master's Seminary is meant to be just that. It's an experience. It's not meant to just give vigorous academic instruction. It's meant to immerse the shepherd in truth. It's meant to hammer home the purposes of pastoral ministry in a way that you don't just remember intellectually, but they make the purposes of pastoral ministry part of your DNA. It's part of your blood. It's part of your heartbeat. The pastoral ministry is not just a job, not just a calling. It is your life. And this inculcation of the heartbeat of ministry is accomplished in many ways. First of all, there is the act of faith of uprooting yourself and your family, moving from another state or even from another country. The rationale for this is very simple. If you're unwilling to go where God would train you, why would anybody believe you're willing to go where God would send you? You arrive to a week of orientation and it's, Kind of a bait and switch, because the first day of orientation, all the ladies from the office are serving the new, the new class goodies and cakes and chocolates and Cokes and coffee and attending to your every need. And then by Wednesday, they disappear. They're gone, and now it's just all down to work. And at the end of that week, it takes an entire week of sitting in class all day long just to learn how to do seminary. You arrive for that time of orientation after many months of a vigorous application process prior to that and yes there is the academic instruction part the average master's degree in other fields require 36 to 54 units of instruction a basic master of divinity in seminary requires 98 units and that's just the basic the student is doing more reading memorizing and studying than ever before and trust me it's not even in the same universe as bachelor's degree work you're writing continually exams, projects, papers. You're always writing something, producing hundreds and hundreds of pages. It's all-consuming. I literally, as a man who started seminary a little later in life, I had to invent new study methods for myself just to keep up. Some part of your brain is constantly in study mode. You cherish an extra 15 minutes or so here to study. You go to bed at midnight. You're up at 4.30 or 5, sometimes earlier, And yet, during all that time of academic instruction, you're consumed with this wonder of learning about our God through language study and Bible survey and Bible exposition and hermeneutics and pastoral ministry classes, counseling classes, many theology classes, prayer classes, bibliology classes, apologetics, evangelism, and of course, expository preaching classes and preaching labs where your sermons get torn to itty-bitty little pieces by people who didn't want to hear you preach in the first place. 
There is, I've preached in a lot of different environments. Still, to this day, the most nightmarish environment is six students who are sleepy and don't care and one professor who's mad that he had to get up early to listen to you preach. It's a tough environment. That's just the academic instruction. Beyond that, there are many other variables to train pastors. There are discipleship labs. My time in seminary required six of them. Meeting in small groups with a professor, laying your soul bare and talking about struggles, being challenged in specific areas of spiritual growth. There are chapels to attend. During my time in seminary, I attended something in the vicinity of 240 chapel services. They're meant to feed your soul, to challenge your heart, to inform your mind about pastoral ministry. And it's a challenge to the body to stay awake when you've been up since 3 a.m. studying for a midterm and you're trying to not be the guy falling asleep during chapel. Of course, you have fellowship with other students, men whom I cherish to this day who are now literally spread all over the world. Long conversations over several years, praying with one another, leaning on each other. You learn to live in the library. The library is like a second home. You get to know who's in the library when and where they usually study. And you get to the point where you can, you can yell somebody's name from 50 feet away and you already know he's there because he's always there at the same time. On Wednesday nights, the library was packed because everybody's studying for Thursday quizzes while their wives were at Seminary Wives Fellowship. You get this precious about 90 minutes to study uninterrupted and you quickly study for your quizzes. On top of all that, you have the expectation of vigorous ministry involvement. You're not just studying about the ministry, you're to be doing the work of the ministry while you're in seminary, preaching and teaching, leading small groups in local churches and so forth. On top of that, you're expected to maintain a vital marriage and family relationship, even having to take a class called the pastor's home. And wives get used to sleepy husbands who have good intentions but can't keep their eyes open. And for most of the men, also working to support a family in Southern California, doing whatever it takes to make ends meet. And for me, I mean, I did every job I could find. I preached every Sunday I was in seminary. I raised money for the Master's Seminary. I did home remodeling work. I literally was on my hands and knees, putting in a wood floor with Hebrew flashcards in front of me. Put in a piece, read another word. Put in a piece, read another word. Read another word, read another word. Put a piece. I did professional moving. I taught a night class. Anything and everything. And and some of you, most of you don't know this, but my wife Sylvia sacrificed as well. In the church I was preaching in as the English ministry pastor in a bilingual church, she took a paid position as the children's ministry director. And without her help, we wouldn't have made it. And for two straight years, she taught children while I preached to help us out. And God was so, so gracious. Every time we thought we weren't going to make it, he would provide in some wondrous way Because what they would say is that there's the curriculum designed by the professors and then there's the curriculum designed by God. And the one designed by God included great trust. On one occasion, I checked my student mailbox for a return paper hoping I got a decent grade and instead I found an envelope with $600 cash in it. And that happened more than once. One dear brother in the Lord sent us a generous check every month for 48 straight months. And on top of that, Every student there knows that every semester the faculty of the seminary were going through a process of character evaluation of each student called candidacy and at times asking students to step away from seminary either temporarily or permanently because they were not fit for the church of Jesus Christ. And through all of this, from every angle possible, from every professor, in every class, in every possible context, if we heard nothing else, we heard first and foremost Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And a very, very close second that we heard all the time was the aim of our charge is love. Do not go out and try to impress the world with your degree from the master's seminary. You know what we were told? And this is true. Whatever little church you get into, they couldn't care less. You know what they care about? Is whether you love them. Whether there's true love there. And this training 
It's meant to forever change you, to light this unquenchable fire of the love of Jesus Christ in the hearts of men who would spread the flame of the gospel all over the world until Christ returns. It's meant not just to inform your thinking, but to dominate your thinking. It's not meant to help your preaching. It's meant to be the driving force behind your preaching. We were the Timothys being reminded by the Pauls. And here in 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul is reminding Timothy in very strong terms of this aim, this charge, this all-consuming, propelling effort for the sake of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, just to refresh our memory here, the situation that Paul is addressing with Timothy is in the church at Ephesus Wayward elders and leaders and teachers in the church have been instructing the church in the myths and genealogies and speculations that we talked about last time. They're upsetting families with ungodly goals for the family, ungodly goals for women, talking of some sort of higher knowledge that only some can possess. They've adulterated the teaching of the gospel, many other perversions of the truth, which really had now become a plague, a disease within the church of Ephesus. Timothy has been given the charge in verse 3. Follow along with me. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And now Paul gives Timothy a reminder of the nature of pastoral ministry. What being a shepherd in the church is really all about. And verse 5 appears like a rosebud. And all you have to do is put a drop of water on it by reading it, by studying it. And it blossoms and it blooms into this beautiful, amazing flower of the description of pastoral ministry. And by the way, the expected result in the people of God. Just as a reminder, we're examining the beautiful bride of Christ here in chapter 1. What the church is to be doing. How the word be preparing for our meeting with Christ face-to-face at the marriage supper of the Lamb someday. And so we've seen elements of this preparation of the beautiful bride. We've seen so far New Testament preaching, effective disciples, and Christ-honoring people. Today, I'd like to simply focus on this element of loving instruction. Loving instruction is how we prepare as the beautiful bride of Christ. Now, I just want to kind of loosely organize our thoughts this morning. And so I'm going to give you one statement which summarizes everything I'm going to say. Then we'll work through that statement in three parts. So here's the statement. I'll repeat it a few times for you. The loving instruction of shepherds. That's the first part. The loving instruction of shepherds. The second part produces the loving life of the church produces the loving life of the church. So, so far, it's the loving instruction of shepherds produces the loving life of the church. And one last part, because love defines the Christian life. Because love defines the Christian life. So all of it all together, the loving instruction of shepherds produces the loving life of the church because love defines the Christian life. And we'll just break this up three ways. First of all, the loving instruction of shepherds. Paul says here, the aim of our charge. This is a word that means the end, the conclusion, the consummation, what we're going after. It's the same root word used to record Jesus' words on the cross in John. It is finished. It is consummated. It is concluded. The sense here is this is the goal. This is what you're aiming for. That's why it's translated aim. The goal of our charge is love. What is the the aim of what? Of our charge. This is a Greek word that means a formal statement of command. It's an injunction to do something. Parangelios. It is formal. It is not informal. It is not two people sitting around over coffee speaking. This is is a formal instruction of God's people. Sometimes I get asked, why do you dress up when you preach? Because of parangelios. This is a formal instruction. This is important. It's speaking of instruction that the duly ordained and trained and appointed teachers in the church are to carry out. And what this means, that the instruction of elders, the the preached word, the, the counseling even between elders and those in the church, this is a formal event. 
This is not a discussion or a set of suggestions. It is the teaching of God's word and the directive to obey the implications and the applications of the truths presented. It's formal to the level of command. It's formal to the level of order. It's formal to the level of directive. My job as a preacher is not merely to give you Bible facts. We are not doing a Bible study right now. I am to explain the word and I am to exhort you to a level of, in fact, insistence. To not just say, I hope you will obey. It is to say, you must obey. Paul told Titus in a very similar situation on the island of Crete in Titus 2.15. He said, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, it's important to remember that Paul has just commanded Timothy to rebuke teachers and elders in the church who are teaching content that's opposed to the gospel and of a lesser nature than Scripture. They're, they're teaching because they want influence, they want power, they want to feel good, they want people to like them, whatever their false motives are. Keeping that in mind, for some reason, the English, uh, uh, English Standard Version doesn't reflect a contrastive conjunction, the word but that's in the Greek text, but the aim of our charge, which would give us this emphasis, Compared to the false teachers, but the aim of our charge, we're different. We have a different motive. Meaning, in contrast to these teachers over here who are teaching because they have false motives, they, they love a following, they want to impress people, they want to excite people with these obscure speculations, the goal of our instruction is different. By the way, just a little side note here, the implication is that some of these false teachers may still be teachable, may still be correctable. Timothy is to instruct them and urge them to be better trained. Verse 7 says they think they know the word of God, but they don't. The worst thing you can have in a teacher in the church is somebody who doesn't know what he doesn't know. In verse 3, Timothy is to charge them. Same word as verse 5, command, instruct, not to teach a different gospel, And so these still in the church would be unlike Alexander and Hymenaeus of verses 19 and 20, whom Paul has already personally booted out of the church. Some of the teachers still there may be correctable. But Paul does call them out on their wrong motives. They're not teaching. They're not preaching for the right reason. What's the right reason? The aim of our charge is love. Love. Probably the most familiar Greek word to the average Christian, agape. It's used 116 times in the New Testament. Very popular word. And it means at its base form to hold someone in high esteem. To hold someone in high esteem. But it's a noble and it's a lofty type of love. It's a, it's a character of love that cherishes its object. And it's very interesting that agape in extra biblical Greek literature is almost never used to speak of sexual attraction or romantic love. There, it, is, it is loftier than that. It goes beyond feelings of warmth. It's not just a feeling. Definitely includes a purposeful warmth toward one another. But beyond just some sort of warmth, it includes a vested interest in the well-being of someone else. That you desire them to be well off in whatever way you're focused on. Agape love speaks of the love of one human for another. We read of that in 1 Corinthians 13 as an example. Agape love speaks of the love of God and Christ toward us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 tells us that. Agape love speaks of the love within the Trinity between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And John 17, 26 tells us that. And so this is love that's to aspire to the level of heavenly love, of sacrificial love, of devoted love. It's love that cherishes another And so the aim of the charge of the teacher and preacher of God's word is not merely to give you knowledge. It is not to give you a lecture because a lecture is helpful, but it's not necessarily loving. Paul already says that falls short. The goal of the instruction in the word of God and righteous behavior is love and the instruction itself is an act of love. So how is this love produced in those doing the teaching and preaching? You know, I'm human, and I have bad Saturday evenings. I have bad Sunday mornings. Um, I heard John MacArthur say once that once in a while, he wakes up on a Sunday morning and goes, oh, no, it's Sunday. 
because we're human. So what do you do? I know of one church that they get their pastoral staff in the offices and they start jumping up and down and trying to conjure up this emotion and this frenzy. What if I don't want to jump up and down? What if I don't feel like it? Or maybe I just have to think really sentimental feelings about you. I have to think all of the the wonderful things and there are many of them about you. None of those things are reliable. And really they're very superficial and they're very shallow. Paul tells us where this love comes from. He tells us how it's produced and it has nothing to do with emotion or sentiment. It's love, it says here, that issues from. It means it comes from somewhere. It, is, it has an origin. It's caused by, it issues from, we'll call it three channels. Three channels or maybe three means, three causes of agape love, none of which are purely emotion-based. What are these channels through which love then flows? Right here in the text, the aim of our charge is love that issues from, first channel of love, a pure heart. It comes from somewhere. It comes first from a pure heart. Now, just a little biblical review for you here. In biblical thought, the heart is the center of a person. It is the real you. The overall home of your thoughts and will and emotions. It's, to put it this way, the person you really are before God. When you're laid bare before God, that is your heart. And Paul says that love issues from a pure heart. This is a word that means the state of being cleansed. Wholesomeness, innocence in motivation. That before God, the motive of the heart in doing the teaching and preaching in the church is clean and pure and delightful to the Lord. And Put it the opposite way, conversely, the lack of a pure heart, of humility before the Lord, and of clean and godly motives, that stops true love right in its tracks. You ever hear a sermon where you sort of suspect that the preacher was less enamored by the word of God and just kind of mad for no particular reason? I think maybe he forgot pure heart. You have every right to expect something of your shepherds, and that is to instruct you from no other motive than love. No other motive. That your shepherds have checked and monitored their hearts, and before God they desire to be a benefit and a help to you, all to the glory of God. One of my greatest, greatest joys in my entire life is the last thing I do every Saturday evening before going to sleep is I pray for you. And I pray for my own heart to be emboldened to love you with instruction. So the first channel of love is a pure heart. Doesn't have anything to do with emotion. It has to do with checking your heart. Second channel of love and a good conscience. A good conscience. What is your conscience? It's the part of you that God gives to distinguish right from wrong. And it's a gift given to all human beings. Your conscience is a gift. In fact, Romans 1, beginning of verse 18, tells us that the unrighteous suppress their conscience. They suppress the truth that God has put in their conscience In fact, Paul says that what is known about God is plain to them that God is a God of right and wrong, the attributes of God, which Paul says are clearly perceived. And yet, verse 21 says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. So the unbeliever has suppressed his conscience in many ways. So how does God respond? Romans 1, 24 and 26, he gives them up. He gives them up to that suppression so that now they exist in the murky mud of their own self-styled, disgusting self-righteousness. And we see these types of people on the news every day. People that we know are very smart, who have law degrees from Harvard, and yet cannot even come close to thinking straight about spiritual issues because God gave them up. But for the believer in Christ, your conscience is alive and well. It's, it's vibrant. It's vital It should be active and working. And so Paul says the second channel of love is a good conscience. It means a morally right conscience, a useful conscience, a beneficial conscience that you've checked why you are teaching, why you are preaching. The false teachers, verse 19, says they have rejected a good conscience. Even the apostle Paul tested his conscience concerning the ministry 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12, he says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. In other words, even when Paul had to be direct, had to be hard, had to be confrontational, 
with the Corinthians, his conscience is clear that it was from no other motive except love. That was his motive. And there's a third channel of love, a sincere faith. A sincere faith. Literally a faith without hypocrisy. A faith without hypocrisy. That the faith of the teachers and preachers is genuine. They truly love Christ. And I think that's a reasonable starting point we should go with. But deeper than that, that for those instructing others in the church, their genuine desire is to see God's people walking in the manner worthy. That that's what brings joy. Paul even said to the Thessalonian church, you're the reason we boast because of your walk with Christ. And of course, the implication is that the shepherds themselves are pursuing that life of faith, a sincere faith. Anytime I hear of somebody speaking of the ministry as a job, I know that they don't fully understand the ministry. It's not a job. It is having faith, living faith, imparting that faith. And so what's happening here? A pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith. Those objective measures, those tests of the heart now produce instruction motivated by love, produces instruction which is an act of love. That's what you should expect from your shepherds. That's what you should hear from the word of God. You know when I know when a sermon has been at least mildly successful, when somebody says, that really hurt and thank you. That's when I know it's successful because the greatest thing anybody can ever do for you, the greatest act of love is to make you more like Christ. That's the best thing you can do. I love looking at Paul, the author of 1 Timothy. He's the extreme and supreme example of this loving instruction. He was absolutely determined. He was resolute. He was unswayed that he would instruct God's people no matter how hard it became, no matter the challenges, no matter what type of instruction they required. In fact, he told the Corinthian church that he was coming soon to deal with many of their problems in the church. And he asked a great question. It's a shepherding question. It's a fatherly question. It's a very simple question. He says in 1 Corinthians 4.21, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with, a, with love in the spirit of gentleness? You dads have said to your kids, do you want to do this the hard way or the easy way? Very simple. And what was Paul's determination? He was going to shepherd them one way or another. And what he means by that is, I can give you loving instruction by means of hard and direct rebuke if that's what it requires. Or if you'll soften your heart, I can come to you in the spirit of tenderness. In either case, it's motivated by love. Paul's determination is, I think, best described what he told the Galatian churches. He said in Galatians 4.19 that he would continue in what he calls, this is a description of ministry, the anguish of childbirth. And he says, until Christ is formed in you. That I will take great pains. I will do whatever it takes to see Christ's likeness formed in, in the people God has entrusted. Why is that? Again, the greatest act of love anyone can possibly give is to move you toward the joy of being more like Christ. And how can you do that? Either the hard way or the easy way. The faithful shepherds will keep on. The verse 5 here doesn't just limit itself to mean that the aim of the charge, the goal of the instruction of the shepherds is to instruct out of love. This is a very rich statement. It also carries forward to help us understand that the aim of this instruction is not just to instruct in love, but the aim of the instruction is to produce love. To produce love. This isn't just a corrective of the teachers. This is a corrective of the teachees, of the listeners. The false teaching was not coming from love, and so the listeners were not becoming more loving as a result. Honestly, when I hear somebody say such and such a church is not a very loving church, I think they're placing the responsibility in the wrong place. The responsibility needs to be placed at the pulpit because that's where the love issues from out of loving instruction. This actually continues this emphasis from verse 4, you recall here, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship, the oikonomia, the economy of God, the, the management of God's household. The stewardship from God that sound preaching is supposed to produce that we become more like Christ, we become more loving. 
And so that really leads us to the second part of our statement, our statement about loving instruction. First, the loving instruction of shepherds, second, produces the loving life of the church. It produces the loving life of the church. This love of the shepherds has a, has a purpose, it has a goal. It's instruction which, which generates love in the body of Christ. And this can only be done, by the way, with the truth of the word of God applied to your mind, applied to your heart, and applied to your will, what you do, what you choose to do. There is no other way. No cute story, no illustration, no analogy, no metaphor, no allegory, no, no personality in the pulpit. Nothing except the word of God will actually have that effect in your heart. This is what Paul had told them. Stop preaching the myths and the endless genealogies and the speculations is what was happening. Well, the preaching and teaching in Ephesus was devoid of love because it was devoid of Scripture, and so it wasn't producing love. Instead, it was just producing questions. Wow, we're so smart because we know less than we did an hour ago. That doesn't produce love. The rationale is really quite simple. The preached word should reveal more and more of God's heart to you such that you love him more. And if you love him more, then you have an outlet for that love and that is to love one another. It's very simple. Now you might ask, but how do I generate this love? I don't even like some of the people in this room. Well, what am I supposed to do with that? How do I act in obedience to have this sort of love for my fellow believers, some of whom really irritate me at times? How does this love come about? Well, I'd like to suggest three channels of love for you to take to heart. It's the same three which the shepherds use. We're we're all in the same boat together. Love is channeled first from a pure heart that the person you really are before God is pure in your motivation for your, your interactions with others. That simply doing or saying external things that appear loving but issue from an impure heart is really false and is quite likely to be found out for what it is. The second channel of love, love is channeled from a good conscience with the help of the Holy Spirit. Is your conscience right? Is your reason for interaction of any kind, is it right? What does your conscience do for you? Consciences only do two things. They either afflict you or they comfort you. That's it. That's the, that's the job. It's a very simple job. Your conscience obviously can't be the sole source of your judgment. If it's afflicting you, you know you're doing something wrong. If it comforts you, you may or may not be doing something right. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 4, For I am not aware of anything against myself. There's no period there. There's a comma But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. You might be sinning and your conscience not bothering you. There's only two reasons for that. If you're sinning and your conscience doesn't bother you, either you're ignorant about that area of life and you just don't know better from the word of God, or you're making a conscious choice to continue rebelling. Those are the only two options. Dr. George Knight, who's done just incredible work in 1 Timothy, he wrote, Quote, the life of obedience is an outcome of one's awareness of the responsibility to do what God asks believers to do. What does he mean? It means that if you're testing your conscience continually in all your interactions with others, what's going to be the outcome? It's love. If your conscience is right, then the outcome will always be love. Because listen, it is possible, and, and we in the church, we're masters at this, It's possible to do good things with unconscionable motives. To do good things with wrong, sinful motives. I'll give you a couple of examples. It's possible to be a good listener because you love to hear the juicy details of other people's lives. Proverbs 18.8 says, The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. What does this mean? It means that outwardly you're saying, share your heart with me so that I can help you and minister to you. And inwardly you're saying, share your heart because everything you say is like, nom, 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 nom. And it's delicious. Another example. It's possible to serve others only because you want them to love you back and to judge them if they don't love you back equally. But Proverbs 17, 17 says that a friend loves at all times. Here's an interesting thought. Jesus said in Luke 14, 
12, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Now, that's not a command to never invite anybody you actually like over to your house. It is a command to watch your heart, though. Jesus said in Luke 6, 34, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. In other words, you test your conscience. Are you loving from a sound and a good conscience? And then love is channeled third from a sincere faith. A sincere faith says that loving is the right thing to do regardless of how difficult it is, and it can be difficult. The sincere faith translates the unconditional love which has been given to you from Christ into the unconditional love that we give to one another. And shouldn't that be one of the hallmarks of the church? Shouldn't it be one of the hallmarks that every brother and sister can go to whatever lengths necessary to be in that loving relationship? That should be our hallmark. This is important. Because let me tell you how the world does relationships. This is going to scare you to death. A scientific study done just four years ago revealed that 94% of people believe that their feelings toward a friend are reciprocated, returned in the same fashion. But in actuality, only about 50% of the so-called friends actually feel the same way. In other words, from the world's standpoint, only half of your friends like you as much as you like them. A decade-long research review spanning almost 100,000 test subjects says that on average, only 34 to 53% of friends have a mutual affection for one another. That's disturbing. And right now you're thinking about all your friends and wondering which half actually don't like you. (laughs) Which column do they go in? Do you see why Paul is so adamant that a spirit-filled, a spirit-controlled, a spirit-directed Christian not be like the world? Because the world is fake. But we love through the channels of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, we have a couple of secret weapons. I'm going to give you two of them. Secret weapons which transcend personality, transcend commonality, transcend similarity. The first weapon we have to help us is that we have the ultimate view of one another as those for whom Christ died. That every person in this room who has come to faith in Jesus Christ is someone for whom Christ gave his life. And that alone is enough reason to love one another. Yeah, I might have lots of flaws and I might have some difficulties and there may be certain situations where you don't even want to be around me. Then let me turn it around. You have a lot of flaws and there are a lot of things that we don't like in certain situations. We don't want to be around you. But I'm going to tell you something. Johnny Erickson Tyler wrote this once. That if you saw the most difficult Christian as they will be in glory, you might make the mistake of falling down to worship them. Our first secret weapon is we view one another as those for whom Christ has died. Those in which Christ is being made, God is producing Christ-likeness. Maybe not as fast as you would like, but He is doing it. We have a second secret weapon, and that is the Great Commission. The Great Commission to go, therefore, into all the world making disciples. We are to be about the business of making disciples, of working for the sake of the gospel. And this is one of our best tools in love for one another because love is to be our identifying marker. Love is our greatest gospel tool. It's our greatest evangelistic tool. The love we have for each other is appealing to the unbeliever. Yeah, somebody, an unbeliever might say, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in God or I think the Bible is bogus or I don't believe in Jesus. They might say all that, but one thing they cannot deny is the loving fellowship between Christians. When they see it, they cannot deny it. They cannot get away with it get away from it and it is attractive and it opens the door to the gospel and jesus himself even said this he said in john 13 35 by this all people will know that you are my disciples that you belong to christ if you have what love for one another what a great weapon to help us this is what was happening with yodi and syntyche in philippians chapter 4 they weren't getting along these two women and paul 
said, get along. And what was his rationale? It was for the sake of the work of the gospel. That was the reason. What a tremendous truth that the loving instruction of shepherds produces the loving life of the church. And now we can finish that statement. The loving instruction of shepherds produces the loving life of the church because love defines the Christian life. Because love defines the Christian life. And I want to move beyond 1 Timothy 5, 1, 5 now because I want you to see that our life in Christ and love is so united, so intertwined, you cannot really explain one without the other. You can't explain the Christian life without love. You cannot explain true love without the Christian life. They go together. And so I, I want to just kind of overwhelm you a little bit with some New Testament right now. Don't try to turn to these because we're going to do a few dozen references here briefly. But what I want to do is just give you some associations. Love and, love and, love and. You can't get away from this. That love defines the Christian life. Here's our first association, love and faith. Love and faith. If you're a note taker, you might just note these references. Jesus told the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2.19, I know your works, your love and faith. They go together. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.8 that our spiritual armor consists of, quote, the breastplate of faith and love. That love and faith together is a spiritual protection for us. Paul commended Philemon in the city of Colossae in Philemon verse 5 that he had heard, quote, of your love and faith that you have. They go together. Paul finishes his letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6.23, peace be to the brothers and love with faith. In this very same chapter of 1 Timothy 1, verse 14, Paul says that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.13, the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3.17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you be rooted and grounded in love. Faith and love, faith and love, faith and love. You can't get away from it. That's just the beginning, though, of our life in Christ, being united, bound to love. Love is also bound to our life in the Spirit of God. Love and the Spirit. That's our second association. Love and the Spirit. Paul reminded the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 6, that he had proven himself to be real, to be genuine to them by means of the Holy Spirit and love. The Holy Spirit and love. You're very familiar with Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is, what's the first thing on the list? Love. You can say love anytime and you're probably in the right place. It's okay. Colossians 1, 8, Epaphras had reported to Paul of their love in the Spirit. Love is produced by the Spirit of God. It's another association. If you're a note taker and you're numbering, number down to 14. Love and truth. Love and truth. Philippians 1.9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge. We've already said this. Love comes from knowledge of the word. 2 John verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Right there together, in truth and love. Ephesians 4.16 tells us that the equipping of the saints through instruction in the word, through truth, quote, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what? Love. Love is generated by knowledge of the truth. How about this association? Love and unity. Love and unity. Philippians 2 verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same, what? Love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Colossians 3, 14, and above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Colossians 2, verse 2, Paul prayed for the church at Laodicea, quote, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. This is the amazing thing about the gospel, is that God can bring a group of people together in a local church that some of some of whom have nothing in common. Your families are completely different. You grew up in a culture that's completely different. You dress differently. You speak differently. Everything about you is different. And yet, under the banner of the cross and under the banner of loving one another, we are knit together. That's amazing. How about this association? Love and obedience. Love and obedience. Romans 13.10 Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. 
Once in a while, a new believer will ask me, what do I do? I mean, this is a big Bible. I don't even know where to start. How do I obey? What if I miss something? You know, what, what if, what if uh, you know, the Bible says, thou shalt not get gas at Chevron? And I don't know that. You know what the simple answer is? Do everything you do in love. Let that be the motive. You'll probably be pretty close to obeying everything. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love as Christ loved us. How about love and leadership? Love and leadership. 2 Timothy 3, 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love. Titus 2, rather, verse 2, older men are to be sound in love as they're leading 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love. Love and leadership. Well, what about followers? How about love and followership? 1 Thessalonians 5.12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love. And the reason is very simple, because of their work. Because they impart the truth to you, which in turn makes you do what better? Love. How about love and determination? Love and determination. Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Those three little short phrases, right there together, if you're letting love be genuine, that means that you hate what's evil and you hold fast to what's good. You're, there's a determination. 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Paul says, pursue love. 1 Timothy 6.11, pursue love. 2 Timothy 2.22, take a wild guess, pursue love. Love is not something that you just walk by that new acquaintance in the church and go, oh, I think I really love this person. No, it's a decision. It's a determination. You just decide. How about love and forgiveness? Love and forgiveness. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? It just means very simply that if you have worked and pursued love, that the little minor irritants that somebody may have, you just really don't notice them that much. It's just, it's okay. You just say, love covers a multitude of sins. It's like the, the old woman celebrating her 50th anniversary was asked by a granddaughter, how have you managed to stay in love with grandpa all these years and she said it's very simple i just made a list of the 10 things that he can't ever do and every time he did something i just said to myself it's a good thing that's not one of the 10 for 50 years because love covers a multitude of sins paul is urging philemon to forgive the runaway slave onesimus who's now saved and he tells philemon philemon verse 9 not i command you to forgive he says Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Love and forgiveness. How about this one? You might not put these two together. Love and giving. Love and giving. Concerning an offering to the church of Jerusalem, Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians eight twenty four. he says, give proof before the churches of your love. Show them that your love is real. Or as we would say, put your money where your mouth is. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8, Paul challenges the same church to prove that their love is genuine through their generous giving. How about love and sensitivity? Love and sensitivity. Romans 14, 15 says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. What does that mean? It means we're to know one another, to try our best to adjust to one another. It takes work take, to be sensitive. How about love and fruitfulness? Love and fruitfulness. Galatians 5.13, through love serve one another. 1 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul thanks God for their labor of love for the gospel. What is your ultimate motive for serving the people of God in the church, for serving the church as a whole, for serving the lost population of our city and our county through the ministry of the church? Your motivation is love. That will take you all the way to the end of your life. How about love and patience? Love and patience. Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. What does it mean to bear with one another? It means that there is nothing you can ever do that will ever push me over the cliff to stop loving you. You can't do it. How about love and your speech? 
Love in your speech. Ephesians 4.15, rather speaking the truth in what? In love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. All of these associations with love, and these are just samples. They're just samples. I just made a short list of love and faith, love and the spirit, love and truth, love and unity, love and obedience, love and leadership, love and followership, love and determination, love and forgiveness, love and giving, love and sensitivity, love and fruitfulness, love and patience, love and speech. Do you see that the loving instruction of shepherds produces the loving life of the church because love defines the Christian life? Love defines the Christian life. And of course, the ultimate compendium, the ultimate collection of the associations of love is Paul's masterwork of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 and 8. The 15 qualities of love. And I'd like to end where we began. If you would repeat after me. Love is patient and kind. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. But rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love bears all things. Believes all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Endures all things. And we can say this all together. Love never ends. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, I don't know how you could have been clearer that the aim of our charge is love. That instruction to your people is to be done motivated by love and it is to produce love because love really defines the Christian life. And Lord, I know that we have all failed you in one degree or another on behalf of the shepherds and the leaders of Grace Bible Church. I want to ask for your forgiveness for the times and the ways we have been less than loving. When our motives have been less than pure and our consciences have not been right. And on behalf of all the members of Grace Bible Church, I want to pray on their behalf, Lord, that you would forgive us for the ways we have not been loving. Lord, help us with the relationships within our church that are damaged, that are perhaps even in disarray. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to fulfill the command of Philippians 2 to see one another as more important than ourselves. Help us with that, Lord. And help us most especially for the honor of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. Help us to be those that demonstrate the loving kindness of God to one another so that the unbeliever might see and might inquire as to how they too might experience that love which comes through Christ, through forgiveness, through repentance, and through coming to faith by means of the cross. I pray, Lord, that we would honor Christ. And if you would be so, so gracious that at the end of days, all who have been involved with this local body, with Grace Bible Church, that as we're gathered together to stand before our Lord, that we might receive a commendation unlike the Ephesian church of Romans 2, in which now the Lord Jesus Christ says, you did not lose your first love. We pray for that commendation. Help us, Lord, to love intentionally, to be those who look so like Christ that those in the world would say, I desire that as well. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.